but I also have a great desire for you that through the teaching of God's word and by teaching you God's word that you would also learn how to better rightly divide the word of truth, to become better students of God's word and know how to read it and to be able to interpret it. Um, I think sometimes when we come to a text like this or like a book of Mark or many of the, Bi- the books of the Bible, I think sometimes when we read through it, we kind of get this idea that maybe these authors were just kind of haphazardly slapping stories together as they go. You know, they think, well, you know, this would be a good place to talk about Jesus' upbringing and maybe a little bit, this might be a good place to talk a little bit about Jesus' miracles and Jesus' teachings. And then we'll put a little over here about Jesus, you know, struggle with the Pharisees, that would be good. So sometimes we think there's not really much of a rhyme or reason by which these authors are, are stringing these stories together, but uh, th- nothing could be further from the truth. We have to remember that these men were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being led to write the very words of God. And so, so as they're writing, every story and every detail is placed there for a specific reason. And, and I was reminded of this this last week, and so I kind of want to give you an illustration of this or an example of this. In the beginning of, or the latter part of chapter 8, um, Mark begins a new section. And in that new section, he begins with the story of Jesus healing a blind man. Do you remember Jesus healing the man in stages? A very strange miracle. He heals the guy. He says, can you see? And he says, yeah, I see men, but they, it's fuzzy, and they look like men walking around like trees. And, and they sit there and go, well, yes, and then he heals him again, completes the miracle. Do you remember that story? Completes the miracle, then finally he can see everything very clearly. Well, when you fast forward about three chapters to the end of chapter 10, At the end of that section, what we find is another miracle where Jesus heals another blind man, the blind man Bartimaeus. And so you say, well, what's so significant about that? Well, he begins the story with a healing of a blind man. He ends it with the healing of the blind man. The significance is this. When we see people being healed from blindness in the Bible, it stands as as a study or an understanding of what God wants to do to us spiritually. He wants us to come to faith and see, give us spiritual eyes to see who he is. An example of this is after the very first miracle, the very next section is where Peter, finally, his eyes are open, and he's able to see Jesus for who he is. And he says, you are the Christ. And then between these two bookends, we see all types of stories about faith. We see some with absolutely no faith. We see some with great faith. We'll even see in just a week or two, we'll see children with childlike faith that he calls us all to have. And this morning, we're going to come and we're going to see a man who had faith, but he struggled with his faith. See, I would say that there are probably some folks here, and I know many of you, who have great faith. Great faith. Just great men and women of God in great faith. There are some who have absolutely no faith. They've never come to faith, true saving faith in Jesus Christ. But there are many people here that I think that I can identify with this. We have faith, but we struggle with that faith. We trust Jesus, but there are many times in which we fail to fully trust him. We're struggling in that trust. We want to, but we struggle with it. And if that's where you fall, I think that the word of God will certainly speak to your heart this morning. There's four different things we want to see this morning from the text of Scripture. I know Baptists are supposed to have three points, but I decided to go a little crazy this morning and give you four. The first is this. We see a misplaced faith in the Scriptures. 
Verse 14 says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. Now remember the context here. What has just happened? Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, are coming from the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus basically pulls back the veil to his humanity, and he allows his disciples for the first time to see him in all of his glory. Now that's a mountaintop experience. That is quite the event. And so these guys, you know, are filled. Their hearts are, are filled with joy. Their heads are still in the clouds. But Jesus says, but now it's now time to come down into the valley. And how many can identify that there are times in our spiritual life where Jesus certainly allows us to go to the mountaintops, you know, where he shows us maybe a certain aspect of him we've never seen before or something becomes alive that we're reading for the first time. And, and we just think of nothing else but Jesus But how many would agree we don't get to stay there very long? The truth is the majority of the Christian life is not lived on the mountaintop, but it's rather lived where? In the valley. And in the valley, there's disappointment. In the valley, there's difficulty. In the valley, there's trials and and, and, and failures. And this is what Jesus and his disciples discover when they they come down uh, from the mountain. When they come down, there's this huge group of people, and everybody seems to be arguing according to the text of Scripture. There's his disciples. The good news is they've continued ministering while Jesus was gone. They continued uh, ministering and casting out demons in that ministry. But the problem is, is when he finds them, they have failed to be able to cast a demon out of a young man. And there are the scribes, the sin sniffers, who were just waiting for this day that they would fail. And so they're jumping on board, and they're arguing back and forth. And the crowd is seeing all of this stuff. This is, this is a real downer. This is, hey, up to this point, uh, the disciples and Jesus were batting a 1,000, but now the one that we believe truly placed our faith in, now it seems to be kind of coming apart. And so what we find is, though, there is a huge can, uh, a transition or contrast between the gloom of the people there in verse 14 and then what happens in 15 with when Jesus comes, uh, uh, is revealed. He says in verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and they greeted him. So here we are, doom and gloom, people arguing, people fighting, failure, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes and it says that they were greatly amazed. Now, we've been in the book of Mark for so stinking long that you might not remember the, th- the name of our series. The series is Amazed. And the reason for that is because this word is used amazed so many times. They're amazed by Jesus. But most of the time that the word is used, it's used at the end of the narrative, at the end of the story. And usually after um, Jesus has performed a miracle, it says that the people then stood amazed by Jesus and what he would do. But here... It's flipped completely the opposite side. It says that they were amazed in the beginning of the narrative and before Jesus ever performs any miracle. What is it? It's this huge contrast. And what they've done is they've shifted their focus and their faith and the disappointment that they had in faith in man. And now when Jesus comes, their attitudes are shifted. They're now, they're now amazed because their focus is no longer on man, but now on Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you this Can anybody identify with this? Can you identify with having placed maybe perhaps too much faith in a person that you were hoping that were going to solve your problems and your difficulties and your pains, and and really you and I were sorely disappointed? Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a counselor. Maybe it was a a, a coach. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a congressman or a president or, or even a pastor. 
And all of us have come to the point where we really thought that this person had all the answers and could really solve the problems only to find out and to be completely disappointed in them. We've all experienced that before. Now, as a pastor, I get to hear this quite a bit in my profession and in my calling because people who come and visit the church will, will often say things like this. They'll, they'll come and they'll say, hey, you know, Brother Mike... You just don't know how much that former church hurt us. We were hurt by the church, and we were hurt by the pastor. Then they usually give all kinds of details, like, you know, I had surgery on my toe, and nobody called, and those sorts of things. And then you think, well, you might need, this might not be the church for you. And, 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 and people, you know, you would expect, and I think what they're looking for is they're looking for love and encouragement and everything. The problem is, is they don't realize that I don't have the gift of mercy. Right? You guys realize that by now, right? I don't have that. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. Jesus is renewing me for it. But if mercy is what you're looking for, you probably came to the wrong place. Go to Joyce. That's what people do. My secretary. They, they, hey, hey, listen, man, I'm really struggling. Uh, okay, well, how can I help you? No, I called for Joyce. Okay, because I need mercy, right? Not you. And so, so they need mercy. And so here's usually how I respond to this type of thing. And, and, and as I sit there, and, and I know they're wanting to be coddled, but the only thing I have for them is, hey, join the gang, brother. Join the gang. I've been hurt by church too. Almost every week I'm hurt by the church somehow. I've been churched by preachers. I've been hurt by this preacher. I've hurt myself. I understand your frustration, I understand why you would be so kind of caught up with all of this. But here's what I say. I said, you know what? Part of it's your own fault. Because if you're anything like me, what you were doing is you were looking for a sinful man and played way too much faith in a sinful man and a sinful group of people. Here's what you need to do. Get your eyes off then. Turn your eyes on Christ. If you no longer want to be disappointed, get your eyes and your faith off men and place them in the amazing person of Jesus Christ. So there's a misplaced faith. But here's the second thing. We see a challenged faith in verse 16. He says, and he asked them, this is Jesus, he says, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it it, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. No, so we see that this man is struggling, and his son is suffering, and it gives this great detail of, of what the suffering is all about. It, it talks about him, his son, going through convulsions, foaming at the mouth, outcries, lockjaw, bodily rigidity, followed by a loss of consciousness. All of this really leads to the conclusion that this young man is suffering from some kind of epilepsy. Not really sure exactly what it is, but the physical problem was not really his biggest problem. That was just kind of the, the, the outpouring of a greater, deeper problem, and that was he was indwelt by a spirit, a demon. And so what we find is, is that this father, of course, I think we can uh, identify that this, this father was in a place of hopelessness. This father was wanting to be able to come and to be able to alleviate his pain and his son's uh, pain. And, and, and we can all, look, if you're a parent, can't you identify that? Moms, Mother's Day, can't you identify that? There's something that God has placed in each and every one of us that will do anything to keep our children away from pain, to rescue them from harm. Sometimes it's completely out of balance, even much like this guy. Sometimes we're so, we're so 
overwhelmed with trying to protect our kids physically that it's unbalanced and we're not really thinking about the more important, the spiritual side of things. But God has placed this within us. We want to be able to protect them. Here's the problem. This father has done everything that he can, but he can't help his son. He's done absolutely everything that he can. And so one day he hears a word of hope. He hears, hey, have you heard about Jesus and his disciples? I've heard that these guys have the power to be able to cast out demons. You need to go and check them out. And so they go and check him out. He says, really? And so you can almost tell, hearing that word, a little bit of faith begins to spark up. That faith that was almost dead within him. He gets, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the answer. And so he brings him to the disciples. Can't find Jesus. Here's the disciples. Brings him to Jesus. They're like, hey, listen, no problem. We've cast out. We've seen this problem many times. We're batting a thousand. They go to cast out the demon. No casting out. This man is broken and Here's the interesting thing. At this point, you're expecting super sappy, bunny-petting, Jesus, valley, uh, Birkenstock-wearing, tree-hugging Jesus to come out, right? This is where he comes out, and he just says, hey, listen, it's all going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. That's what you're expecting. What do we get? Instead, the scriptures say in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, who in the world is Jesus talking to? Who is he talking to? I think it's important to understand that he's already used very similar language just a couple of chapters before this. You remember after Jesus performing the miracle of the multiplication of the bread and the loaves? Do you remember that? He did it not only once. How many times did he do it? Twice. And after the second time, what did they do? They get into a boat, they cross the sea, and all of a sudden, the disciples sit there and go, wait a minute, we only have one loaf of bread. And they start worrying about bread. And what does Jesus say to me? He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are you hard-hearted? Are your hearts hard? What is he saying? Don't you get it? The last thing you have to worry about is bread. You've seen all of this, and yet you still worry about bread. Jesus is saying the same thing to these people. He says, listen, why are you worried? You've seen enough. You've heard enough. You've seen my power. And yet you still don't believe? Still, who is he talking to? Well, I think the the context helps us a little bit. That that, that phrase, oh, faithless faithless generation, uh, Paul uses it five times. But the five times that he uses it, he's never speaking just directly to the disciples. Instead, he's casting a much wider net each time he uses it. And so what he's doing is he's including everybody in this. He certainly is including the disciples who failed to cast the demon out. He certainly has fa- he's certainly speaking to the crowd. Listen, don't be fooled by the crowd. We've learned enough about the crowd. The crowd's coming and exciting about Jesus, but they're not excited for who he truly is. They're excited because of what they think that they can give him. So don't be fooled by that. It's not, they're not turning to him in true faith. And, and of course, he's also talking to the scribes who were sitting there, the old crusty curmudgeons. Who are sitting back there and, 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 and you know, are just trying to down Jesus in whatever the way they can. And perhaps he's even referring to this man who is struggling in his faith. And he's, and, he's, and he's struggling greatly. He doesn't know where to turn. And so Jesus is coming out and he's, and, and he's, and he's letting them know that you should be able to believe uh, by now. Now, stop and think of what a challenge this must have been for this man. He's facing not only an impossible situation, humanly impossible situation, but he is surrounded by impossible, unbelieving people. 
Listen, isn't it true that if you're going through a hard time that you want very affirming, positive, encouraging people around you, right? It's like this. It's, it's some people, they just have no tact, and I, I don't understand it. A person sits there, and they come, and they go, I just found out that I have this incurable disease. And people sit there and go, oh, you know what? My cousin had that, and they, it did not end well with them. I don't, I don't understand that. I, you're... <laughs> Really? No, you want people to sit there and go, hey, man, we're going to beat this thing. Hey, through the power of Jesus. Man, Jesus has the final say through this thing. And you know what? You win if he heals you. You win if you lose. Amen? Amen. God will be glorified. And so you want, you want people like that that are surrounded you. Not, oh, yeah, man, oof, that's bad. <laughs> so he's surrounded by all this. And so his faith is not being encouraged. His faith is being ultimately discouraged. It's being downtrodden through this whole idea. But here's the interesting thing. Here's, here's the hope. The hope is in Jesus' frustration. And let me explain this. Jesus is frustrated here. This is, this is a divine frustration with his people for an unwillingness to ultimately be able to believe in Jesus. I can identify with Jesus, can't you? Have you ever been frustrated for a spiritual purpose? If you are a man leading your home, you felt this. Moms, you felt this with your children. If you lead a small group, you felt this. If you've ever led a small Bible study trying to lead people to greater faith in Jesus Christ, you know this frustration. If you've ever been a pastor of another church except for Celebration Baptist Church, you've experienced this frustration of trying to lead people into a greater, deeper understanding of faith, but yet they just don't get it. They just aren't moving along. And the reason for that frustration is this, and here's the difference between us and Jesus. Well, there's a lot, but here's one of them, is that that... The reason we're frustrated in the family is because if we can't get everybody on board in faith, we can't move forward. We're stuck. The church is the same exact thing. We can't really move forward if, if there's a lot of people who aren't there yet. We gotta, it's hard to move forward. We're like, hey, stop and move forward. So our progress is impeded by others' unbelief. Here's the cool thing. Jesus is, isn't. Jesus and what he does is not dependent on your faith, my faith, lack of it, how much we have. It doesn't. Jesus is completely and utterly sovereign king of the universe. If he wants to do it, he can do it. He'll do it when he wants to, when he doesn't want to, nobody believes. Guess what? Jesus says, I'm going to do it anyway. I love what the psalmist says. Psalm 135.6, this is enough. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. That's hard, it's hard to get you. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't he have to ha- kind of have our approval or something? No. People really struggle with that. Wait a minute, aren't I the final? No, you're not the final say. Jesus is the final say. And so what we find here is this. Here's the encouragement. There is a, mis- there is a challenge faith, and we're challenged all around. But here's what. There are no challenges to Jesus. No challenges to Jesus. Here's a third thing. We see a weak faith. I need to hurry. You're running out of time. Or I'm running out of time. We're both running out of time. Third, a weak faith. At this point, Jesus calls the boy over. All right, y'all, I believe him. Come here, son. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and it fell on the ground, and it rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now, this is exactly what happens every time. One of these, we've seen it many times in Mark. Every time uh, somebody who's demon-possessed comes in contact with Jesus, they recognize who he is, they have a fit. They're like, oh, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, oh, son of God? Oh, shut up. Okay, we will. Send us into the pigs. We just want to get away from you. We've seen this all the way through the book. 
And so here they're responding. And what are they trying to do? He, he, he begins to tell them. He says, he, he, he goes on. He says, how long? Jesus says, how long has this been happening to you? And then we find out, man, this is since he was a boy. His father's been struggling, man. Wouldn't you? Listen, isn't it not only the magnitude of the problem, but the length in which you're facing the problem that really challenges our faith? If somebody comes tomorrow and you've, you have a problem, you can sit there and go, okay, let's have faith. But as day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year and decade after decade comes and still no answer to that particular problem, in that when that faith begins to really begin to dry, dry rot and to weaken, and then he says here, he says, hey, listen, he goes, they were trying to kill him. He says, from childhood, he would cast him in the fire and into the water to destroy them. Why would the demons do that? Because that's their purpose. We went over this earlier in the book of Mark, but their purpose is to destroy us, and not only us, but destroy the image of God which is in us. So they're trying to make this man look like a crazed animal rather than a son or a child of God. But then notice this. We know that he's at the extent. We know that he's at the end of his faith. Listen to this. Listen. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus says, if you can? Wait a minute. If you can? Right. You know, there's almost like sarcasm in Jesus in this passage. You know, this, this, I haven't seen this side of Jesus before. If you can. See, there was another time that a man responded to Jesus in a very similar way. In chapter 1, there's a man who was a leper. Do you remember this? I know you do because you remember everything I preach. So back in chapter 1, there was a leper. And he says, Jesus, he says to Jesus in faith, he goes, if you will, I know that you can heal me. That's an appropriate response to Jesus. You know what that says? It's not a question of whether you can. I know that you can. The question is, will you? And that's up to you. You're sovereign God. Will you save me or will you not save me? If you save my life, then great praise be to God. If you don't, all the better to live as Christ, to die as gain. I win either way as a believer in Jesus. And so he, he, he comes. That's a great thing. But this is completely different. Sounds very similar, completely different. He says, if you can. And it's, listen to me. It's never if Jesus can. Jesus always can. There's no can't with Jesus. He can do all things. It's just, it is appropriate to say, God, if it be your will. Even Jesus in the garden says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Has nothing to do with whether Jesus can. And so what Jesus is saying is, he says, listen to this. He says, all things are possible for one who believes. He's not saying that your faith is what does it. But what he's saying here to the man by saying that is he's saying, here's what he's saying. It's not about whether I can because I can. And I'm answering you, it's not about whether I will do it. I'm telling you I will do it. What it's dependent upon right now is if you believe that I can do it. Do you see that? That's what Jesus says. And then notice this. I think it's interesting. Last week, we talked about Jesus and the fact that there was an infinite gap between a holy God and sinful man. Do you remember that? I know you do. And we said what spans that gap, what, 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 what bridges that gap Jesus. Jesus bridges the gap between an infinite holy God and a sinful man. Well, here, let's use the same thing. In the same way, there's an infinite gap between the all-sufficient power of God and the frailty of mankind. What bridges that gap? Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus takes the power of God, puts it at our disposal. Faith in Jesus to live out the will of God in our lives. And so here's where he's talking. Now, here's how he responds. Catch this. 
He says, he responds to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. When I read that this week, I was reminded that this is one of my favorite passages in the book of Mark. Because I identify so much with this. I believe, Jesus, I do truly believe as a gift of God, you have given me faith in you, but help my unbelief. Jesus, I know that, that you can take care of me. I, I know that you are a great provider, but when I look around, God, my job is unstable, my bank account is unstable, the bills are, f- are piling up. Jesus, I know you can, but God, I'm trembling inside. Help my unbelief. Anybody identify with that? God, I believe that all things work together for good to those who are, who are called of God, to those who are called according to who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He goes, but God, I can't possibly see how this is for my good. God, I believe, help my unbelief. There's some who were sitting here and said, but this is especially for me and for you. I believe that in the power of the gospel. I believe it's the power of God and salvation for everybody who believes. But yet, it's preached week after week after week after week. And we see so few respond to the power of the gospel. And yet, we preach it again. Why? I believe. God, help my unbelief. So Jesus says, listen, in order to be able to receive this miracle and the power of God in your life, you have to have faith. But here's the question. How much faith? How much faith? Well, notice this, Jesus, because he doesn't have a great deal of faith. Now, Jesus heals him, verse 25, and when Jesus saw the crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a, was like a corpse. So most of them said he is dead, and Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. How much faith do you have to have to allow the power of God to work in you and through you. Did this man have more faith than we thought? No. He had such a small speck of faith, so little the faith. Then how do you see such amazing things happen? I heard a preacher once give this illustration. He says, faith in Jesus is much like crossing a frozen lake. He says, you really don't know how thick that ice is but if you're going to get across it you have to trust it and he says and it's interesting there will be some people who will cross that lake and he goes and they're just having fun they're sliding out there and they're skating out there and they're spinning around and they're and they're running and sliding across it see how far it's like if they're running into home plate sliding in the home plate and then there's the other person sitting there and they're on the side looking at it and they take rocks and they're throwing it on the ice to see if it's safe and they're putting one foot out and they're pressing on it and they're watching the other person seeing if they're going to fall through and finally they kind of get on that ice and the whole way through they're just trembling just trying to get through that ice and they get to the other side now it's two completely different levels of faith is there not one is doing snow angels on the ice not a care in the world the other one trembling till he gets to the other side and the other side he's relieved now let me ask you It took faith to cross. But what was it that sustained them? Their faith or the ice? It's not so much that your and my faith is so great. It's that to whom our faith is placed, 
is infinitely great. Jesus Christ. He places his faith in Jesus Christ. That's what brings about the power of God in and through this man's life. There's a fourth type of faith, a needed faith. The end, it says this, Jesus gets his disciples in and they're all sitting there and they're amazed. And here, by the way, is what I think the most important part of this lesson is. I think here's the point. Oftentimes, Mark puts the point at the very end. And I think this is the point of the whole story. He says, and when they had entered into the house, verse 28, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The other passage, parallel passage says, much prayer. Now stop and think. Let's walk through this just very carefully. The disciples had already been casting out demons. For several chapters now, Jesus had sent them out to minister. They've been casting out demons. They've been batting a thousand. They've had no problem with this whatsoever. All of a sudden, they come upon one, and they can't get it out. They can't forward it out. Jesus says this doesn't come out through much prayer. What is he saying? He's saying to us that there is a danger experience sometimes is dangerous. He's saying success oftentimes is dangerous. What did they do? They had gotten to the point, basically, where this just became customary. It was so easy for them to be able to do this that, guess what? They lost their need for complete faith and dependence upon God. So what Jesus says is, now, isn't that true? Stop and think about it for just a moment. Think about when you, that first child, you, you had the first, your first child. That little baby comes home, and if you were a believer at the time, this is what you did. Oh, Jesus, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, God, just keep them alive. Dads, do you remember this? I remember feeding my child for the first time. You're sitting there, and your hand's trembling. Don't let them choke. Honey, it's okay. It's, it's applesauce. I know. But what if there's a chunk of apple? No, we got the pureed apple. There's no apple in there. Don't worry. And you're just, can I keep them alive? First time, wife, hey, I'm going to run up to the store real quick. You taking the baby? No. You're a big enough boy to take care of the baby yourself. And you're sitting there and go, oh, God, don't wrap him in Charmin. Do what I please. Let him be okay. Right? And I remember just sitting there and praying so immensely. Oh, Jesus, save them. Oh, God, save them. Help me as a dad to be able to lead them. And then number two comes and kind of start getting the hang of it. And then number three comes, and then you feel a little bit more confident. Then number four comes, and then you're great. And number five comes, oh, dear Jesus, if five hasn't come, Jesus, we're good. Thank you, a blessing. We're good. They're awesome. I'm old, you know, that kind of thing. But you're sitting there and go, but by the fourth or fifth or tenth, right, whatever, ninth, ninth, all right, whatever it is, we, we are fruitful. Amen. We're fruitful. Multiply here. It's awesome. Here, here's the idea. There is an essence of becoming less dependent upon Jesus. I can do this. I've had success at this. But can I tell you that as a parent that you're no further less dependent upon Jesus Christ now than you were the very first day? I think about preaching. I think about preaching the word. The very first time I had the opportunity to be able to preach, had no training whatsoever. Why in the world Dr. Herb Revis allowed me to come and preach at that church? I have no idea. Got it to be able to preach. Don't know what I'm doing. Have no training. All right, open up your Bibles. I'm going to give this a whirl. But before that, fasting and and ashes and sackcloth the night before. Oh, God, please. God, please help me. Then, you get educated. 
you know, to Bible college, you go to seminary, you go and get your doctorate, and they call you doctor. Of course, not here. I don't care. Don't call me that. It's embarrassing. Somebody might think that I could deliver a baby or something, and I'm not doing that. And so what happens is you begin to go through all this. Then you get your doctorate in expository preaching. You've read 200 books on preaching. You've written about it. You've written your dissertation on it. And then you get up and you say, well, maybe I know what I'm doing now. Maybe I can get into the pulpit without him. And then Jesus very quickly reminds you, you cannot do this without me. You cannot do this without me. And so you're back into the study just like you were before that study again. Jesus, I need you. I need you. And I wonder how many of us right now, you have gone through your life and you have basically right now, there's a, there's a section of your life that you've prided yourself on experience, on ability, on everything else. And the truth is, you're sitting back going, why God, why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And, and Jesus sits there and says, man, you've tried, you've, you're just trying to do this on your own. You're placing your faith in yourself. Do you not know that apart from me, you can do nothing? Do you not know that? And you sit there and say, God, I've tried everything. This is even prayers that I've done. God, I've tried everything. And he says, this kind, this type, this type of difficulty that you're going through, this type of difficulty, faith that you're going through, only comes out by much prayer. What is it meaning? Oh, but then I better pray to get out of this. No, he says, you can only navigate through this through complete and utter dependence on me. On me. And where does that faith begin? It begins at salvation. It begins as us as lost believers. God revealing in our hearts that we are sinners against him, deserving of the righteous wrath of God, and that we should be condemned to hell for all eternity. However, God in his goodness sent his only son to die so that his son would take the beating for us. He would become the propitiation for us. So therefore, the wrath of God would pour out on him and we would escape the coming wrath of God and there would be therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we get in Christ Jesus? We repent from our sin. We place our faith and our weight completely upon the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's how it begins, but it doesn't end there. To the rest of our life, it's living one day at a time, sitting there saying, this type does not come out, but by much prayer. That is much trust and faith in him. And the prayer demonstrates that faith. Do you understand that? The prayer demonstrates the faith that we have in him. If you are not praying two things, you either have little problems or you have little faith. Jesus, we come to you today. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. Now, God, here's what I ask. We believe. Help our unbelief. Jesus, let us pray this morning that you would even give us more faith. The fact that we know we need more faith as a demonstration that we do have at least some faith which was given to us by God. Jesus, I ask on behalf of you and your goodness to give faith and grant faith to those who do not believe in you this morning so that they will become children of God. God, I pray today we will lean into you and come and say, God, I've been doing it all, but I haven't been dependent on you. I come to you and bring everything to God in prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand? I'm going to be down here. 
And I'm going to ask you to respond to the preaching of God's word, whether that's where you are, but this altar is open. If you need prayer, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to tell you more about Christ, what he's done for you, how you could be saved. But if you need prayer, you can come as well. But the altar is open to pray. Would you come?